Ruth chapter 2. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair within reach. Definitely grab one so you can see the words for yourself in the study. If you can't find a Bible, just throw up a hand and an usher will come by and put one in your hand there. Ruth. Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible in the Old Testament after the book of Judges. Joshua Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Ruth chapter 2. We're taking a break from our verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew. We left off at the end of uh, chapter 19 uh, to pull over and park and do a study in this compelling, captivating, short narrative, the book of Ruth and the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Ruth chapter 2. We've, we took two, two studies to do chapter 1. And uh, if you weren't with us, you can get those on the website. Ruth chapter 2, we're going to do our best to cover all 23 verses. The title of our study this evening is The Miracle of Providence. Well, by God's, by God's kind uh, and loving mercy, I came to faith in Christ just under 20 years ago, in my early 20s. And, and with not growing up with any kind of Christianity at all, uh, no exposure to the things of the Word of God, I, I knew nothing. Uh, early on as a Christian, I had all kinds of uh, well-meaning, perhaps, people teaching me and urging me uh, to embrace certain doctrines and practice certain things. Uh, one of which, uh, I had people uh, pressuring me and, and, and exhorting me to seek out various types of miracles. Signs, wonders, dreams, visions, things like this. Uh, I had no idea what, what this was, uh, but I had in- individuals uh, pressing me. So you need, to, you need to see visions, you need to uh, seek out these miracles and experience them to really sort of have a real faith and these kind of things. Miracles that I could see with my eyes. Miracles that I could hear with my ears, touch with my hands, miracles which required walking by sight, not faith. I was very confused and unsure what to do. Uh, Eventually, in the good providence of God, a very, very godly, proven, exemplary, studied men uh, came alongside me. And showed me from the Word of God that while, while our good God certainly uh, may do a miracle that contradicts His, his, his common laws of, of nature that He's created, uh, that there's something more miraculous than miracles that we could see with our eyes and touch here. The miracle of providence. Have you heard of the miracle of providence? The miracle of God's providence. God's providence refers to His upholding of His creation, orchestrating every event at all times and all places with all people to achieve His decreed purpose for His glory. Where His decreed purposes, more specifically, uh, we could we could break that down twofold. His greatest and ultimate good of every person who would ever trust in Him by faith alone for salvation and His purpose of bringing about the exaltation of Christ 
and the culmination of all things in heaven with His people forever. A couple of definitions on God's providence. Uh, John Calvin wrote this in the 1500s. He said, God so attends to the regulation of individual events and they also proceed from His set plan that nothing takes place by chance. Uh, Later in the 1600s, great Puritan theologian, Pastor John Owen wrote this. He said, quote, There is nothing of which He hath made that with the good hand of providence he doth not govern and sustain. This is one of the most important truths of our good God. The providence of God. That the providence of God governs all things. There is nothing outside of his providence. If the providence of God is in overall things, then we have a huge problem. The universe is going to explode at the seams. Furthermore, God will not be able to overcome evil and, 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 and sovereignly orchestrate history to bring all things to the very good end of heaven that, heaven that we see in places like Revelation 21-22. If God is not exhaustively sovereign in His providence, that, that cannot possibly happen. Furthermore, on the providence of God, Charles Hodge before Princeton fell, Charles Hodge wrote this. He, he, said, he rightly said, quote, This teaches that an infinitely wise, good, and powerful God is everywhere present, controlling all events, great and small, necessary and free, in a way perfectly consistent with the nature of His creatures and with His own infinite excellence, so that everything... Everything. Notice, not 90% of things, not just the good things. Everything is ordered by His will and is made to subserve His wise and benevolent designs. Oh, what a, what a critical truth and fact and absolute of the universe it is for us to cling to these things and to rediscover these things and have a, have a right and a high view of God, an accurate and an exalted view of God. Doing so requires us to understand the glorious truth of the providence of God, the miracle of God's providence. God's providence is a fact that is meant to calm every storm in your life, give you, give you peace inside when there's not so much outside. Joy, to give you joy inside when outside of you things are far from it. That all things under the caring control of an infinitely good God, bringing everything to an infinitely good end. And in Ruth chapter 2, we see the miracle of God's providence. As we read in our scripture reading this evening in Romans 8, 28 and following, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called. All things. That's a statement of God's providence. And Ruth chapter 2 is sort of an illustration of Romans 8, 28. Do you appreciate the miracle of providence? There are miracles of providence in your life. We don't need to, we don't need to look for uh, proverbial sensational signs and wonders. If God should choose to do a miraculous healing of someone with sickness, that's, that's wonderful and we pray for that. But don't overlook the miracle of providence. Uh, 
as we, we will study the narrative and let the story unfold in chapter two. I'm not going to read it ahead of time. Brief reminder about the book of Ruth, what's happening here. The events take place during the book of Judges, the time of Judges, about the 1100s, maybe a tad earlier. The book is really about God working through human hardship and suffering to bring about his good and his redeeming plan, which one day will, at least one day from the perspective of the time of Ruth, will end up in Christ, bringing the Messiah to the world. Recall, we studied chapter 1, where this family, Naomi, her husband Elimelech, they are in a time of famine in Israel, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread, ironically. Agricultural and economic devastation. Uh, Naomi's husband disobeys God, forsakes covenant faithfulness, moves the family pragmatically out of the land. They were to stay in the land, into the pagan land of, of Moab, uh, to ho- hopefully find some bread. In so doing, her husband dies. Her two sons, Malon and Kilion, also die after they take Moabite wives, which they are not supposed to do. Childless, furthermore, nothing could be worse for an Israelite, Israelite at the time. The land to which they fled for food ends up taking their life, and they are buried there. Naomi loses both sons and her husband. She comes back with one of her Moabite daughter, daughters-in-law. Now, as, as we studied a couple weeks ago, as the Old Testament reader would be um, studying these things, they would immediately think of Deuteronomy 28, that all of these things are happening because of Deuteronomy 28. Brief reminder of what happened in Deuteronomy 28, 1500-ish BC. God saves Israel out of Egypt as an act of his grace, not because of Israel's merit. And consequent of his grace, he gives them the covenant. Okay, Israel, you are to obey these, these laws that I give you. If you don't, things are going to go bad. Uh, famine. Death, exile, which we see happens in 722 and then in 586 BC. If you obey, it'll go well with you. Of course they don't, hence the famine. Any Israelite reading this would know this is a consequence of forsaking covenant faithfulness. So Naomi's family experiences that. God in his mercy ends the famine. They come back to Bethlehem. And then we are in chapter 2. Big idea for chapter 2 is this. We've got a lot of... Great stuff to cover in God's providence. If you were to sort of state what's happening here in one sentence, it's in your bulletin as well, we see this. That whether hardship or otherwise, God is orchestrating His providence for His own glory and the good of His people. Not for the good of those who are not His people, which of course is an invitation. It's an invitation to by faith become to put faith in this good God so that whether hardship or otherwise, God is orchestrating his providence for his own glory and the good of his people. Ruth chapter 2. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1 really quick. They return from Moab. Naomi with her uh, with uh, Ruth, the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Providence. Let's get right into it. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So here's sort of the the next scene. Naomi had a kinsman, or relative it could be translating. Interesting detail. Why is this here? Big deal. Uh, Her husband had sort of a wealthy relative with a weird name. 
It's a very big deal. Remember so far the problem in the book of Ruth. We've covered one chapter. How would you state the problem so far? Well, the problem is this. What's going to happen to Naomi? This Israelite woman who has experienced so much suffering and destitution, apparent desertion from the Lord. And second, what will happen to Ruth and her suffering? How will they be provided for? There was nothing worse than being destitute widows in those day, those days. So we're seeing little hints. God's providence is escalating in their suffering. Chapter 1 concludes, they return to the, in the harvest. Despite a few centuries of breaking covenant, God ends the famine. God is faithful, though his people are faithless. All that is shown, his providence is shown, not in easy circumstances, but in providence. There's more providence. Naomi happens to have this relative. The narrator wants us to know there is this guy. And he has been blessed by God with wealth. That just might be providential for two destitute widows with no apparent male relative to help. There's this guy, Boaz. Boaz means strength, or in him is strength. But what will he be like? Will he be like everyone else in Israel? At this time, remember it was a time of, of moral abomination. There's this phrase we see in the book of Judges often. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And then the book of Judges is an illustration of, of the travesty when people actually believe that truth is, is, is a relative concept and that right and wrong is a relative concept. The book of Judges, those statements, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes is sandwiched between factual records of disgusting immorality and forsaking God. So, will Boaz be like this? Will Boaz be like this? Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabites said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. So the author doesn't want us to forget something about Ruth. She is from Moab of all places. A, a land of child sacrifice and worship of of, of the god Chemosh. Recall in, in John one forty six, they hear that Jesus is from Nazareth and they say, ah, can anything good come from Nazareth? This would have been said of Moab far more. Can anything good come from Moab? Earlier in one sixteen, Ruth put faith in Israel's God and now look what's happening. Can I go glean among the ears of grain? Let's uh, pull over and park here for a minute. Gleaning was a mandated provision in Israel for those in a season of destitution. A couple of passages to put up here. Leviticus 19, just to get a feel for what's happening. Leviticus 19.9. This is again given a couple hundred years earlier. God says when you recap, excuse me, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard. Nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger or, or those who aren't native Israelites. Immigrants, I am Yahweh your God. Verse 24, uh, of Deuteronomy 24.19, When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, orphan, the widow, in order that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So this was law in Israel. You might say this is God's welfare system, 
for Israel. This is, this is how God designs a welfare system. And notice, it is a welfare system that required working. Isn't that a brilliant idea? You didn't just get a check. You worked if you were able. God's caring for His chosen, His covenant people, and all, no matter what you were, all, it's stranger, alien, who would come to God and to the people of God in Israel. So Israel was to obey this, and as they were, it was to be both an encouragement to those in Israel who were saved, that God's people take care of each other, and it was to be a light to the nations to say, hey, there's perks to like getting saved and putting faith in God, and here's one of them. Even more, though, the writer wants us to observe Ruth. Notice what she says in verse 2. Look there. She asks, please, can I go? Ruth refuses to be inactive in her suffering, even though it would be very difficult and humbling. Put on the sandals of a 12th century B.C. Israelite. See what's going on here. Naomi couldn't work probably due to age. Ruth asks, can I go serve in one of the most self-denying, self-renouncing, humiliating way in public to pick up scraps? She didn't see herself above that. Add to the fact that Ruth is from Moab, one of the most hated nations by most Israelites. She's a young woman. She's going out in the days of the judges. She is literally risking her life. To do this, it's possible, likely, knowing the book of Judges, she will end up raped and killed. And so she's going to need to find a rare field, a rare landowner who's an exception to these days. Ruth doesn't know about Boaz. She doesn't know about chapter 3 or the rest of chapter 2. She's simply living by faith, trusting this God as she is a new believer uh, to, to care for her in her suffering. She takes her focus off herself and her suffering. Isn't that so important sometimes? Take our focus off ourself and our suffering. She's looking for ways to serve. Verse 3, So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who's the family of Elimelech. Back up to the beginning of verse 3, Have you ever been in a situation like this where it's, it's your first day doing something very new? You don't know anyone. You don't really know what you're doing. You're unskilled. People are watching you. People are very aware that you are new and you don't know what you're doing. That's a fraction of what Ruth is going through. She's brand new in this town. And usually in these small rural Israelite towns, it took a, it took a long time for people to like you, especially if you're from Moab. So she finds a field with some reapers. She probably knows Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. And she happens. Look at the text there. It's a brilliant narrative. Notice what it says. She happened to come to this. The Hebrew here literally says, her chance chanced upon her. Her chance chanced upon her. Of course, any and every Israelite reading this throughout the centuries would chuckle when they say that, when they, when they read that. They would chuckle for two reasons. One, because they knew the fact that there's no such thing as chance. And they would chuckle when they read this because they know that the writer of Ruth knows that there is no such thing as impersonal chance. It's a literary device. 
Again, they know Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16 is a great chapter in Proverbs that says things like, the mind of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his step. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's the lot was like the dice back then. Every roll of dice is from Yahweh. So why, did, why would they put that? Her chance chanced upon. Why, why would they do this? It doesn't de-emphasize God's sovereign providence. It actually emphasizes it. How? Because the point is to express from, from the human beings in the story, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, they have no idea what would happen. Ruth is completely unaware that God is sovereignly guiding her to the perfect place at the perfect time, that this is a miracle of God's providence. This is why Boaz is mentioned in verse 1. The momentum of the story is building. Again, it's brilliant storytelling. Verse 4, and then behold. That Hebrew word, hene. It means, and look what happened next. Check this out. From a human perspective, Ruth's chance chances upon her again. Look at verse 4. Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May Yahweh be with you. And they said to him, May Yahweh bless you. This stands out from the time of the judges. Nobody's talking like this. And this is not you know, mere formality, empty piety. The construction of the way Boaz says it is a little unusual, testifying to his sincere faith. This is a guy that believes in the true God and follows him contrary to the rest of his Israelites at the time. So it appears that the sun is beginning to rise on the darkness of Naomi's suffering. Ruth happens to stumble upon the field of a guy who's saved. It's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. He is a believer. This is great news for them. Perchance chances upon her to come to this field of a guy who is devoted to the true God. It's going to be great news. It also shows that God is actually seeking out Ruth and Naomi. By the way, wouldn't this be a great guy to work for? You know, you clock in, the first thing the boss says is, oh, why haven't you done more? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord be with you. With a work atmosphere like that, it's no surprise that his employees respond the way they do. Well, verse 5, Then Boaz said to his servants, Who is in charge of the reapers? Whose young woman is this? Boaz recognizes there's somebody new in the field. It's part of his godliness. He's observant. He's especially observant when it comes to new people. That's godliness, isn't it? It also emphasizes that God is sovereign. Boaz is just going about his workday and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He observes this new individual. He asks an interesting question. Whose woman is this? Boaz understands that in that day and in that society, if a woman is not in the care of someone, she is in danger. And so the text is bringing out uh, Ruth's precarious place in society. She's nobody's husband. She's nobody's relative. She's nobody's employee. She's nobody's family member. She has no children. She is completely severed from society's security at that time. But 
God is orchestrating the miracle of providence. Verse 6. The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. So this brings out her destitution even more. Notice, Boaz's foreman doesn't say, oh, that's this, new, that's this nice gal Ruth. He doesn't say that. Instead, he only identifies her by her foreignness. She's Moabite. Oh, and if you didn't catch that, she's from Moab. Small towns are havens for gossip and chatter, aren't they? This would be no exception. News has traveled fast. Ruth could feel the whispering, perhaps, verse 7. And she said, please. So he's, the foreman is saying what she, uh, Ruth said. Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So the foreman is amazed, likely because someone from Moab of all places comes to Israel. But even more, a Moabite is looking to profit from these gleaning laws. From the Torah. End of verse 7. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. The Hebrew, the Hebrew is here, here is really awkward. The, the foreman's words are, are broken. It's almost like he's at a loss for words. I think it's intentional. It's likely he's just sort of confused and nervous by the whole scene. This is bizarre. Again, it serves to highlight Ruth's humility, God's providence. She's been, she's been doing this backbreaking work all day. Boaz gets there and she's sitting in this little employee hut. She doesn't know who Boaz is. And so how's he going to respond? Look at verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Wow. Ruth could not have asked for a better situation. My daughter, Boaz says. Immediately, he addresses her as family in all purity. Despite the immoral scene of the day. And he addresses her with care. My daughter, possession already. Stay in the field. Follow my employees carefully. And to show what kind of times they were in, he has to command some of his servants. And and, uh, the Hebrew in verse 9 says, young men, male employees. He has to command them not to touch her, presumably rape her. Don't do that. And whenever she's thirsty, she could come get a drink. So overall here, this is how Boaz is thinking. Because this woman has landed in my field, God is sovereignly asking me now to assume a level of care for her, and he does. That is Torah righteousness. Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is what God was trying to command his people to be like. Are we like that? Of 41 another's, the priority being the people of God. This might seem like basic acts of kindness to us, but they're very unusual then. Normally, foreigners, the custom was foreigners would get water for the Israelites, and women would get water for the men. It gets completely flipped here. Boaz has extraordinary godliness. 
So verse 10, Ruth responds, and she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Since I'm a foreigner, she understands the cultural climate and went out to glean anyway. Verse 11, Boaz replied to her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Naomi must have told the townspeople word traveled fast. Boaz notices her sacrifice. He spells it out. Apparently also notice there that Ruth's parents are still alive. He says, you've left your father and mother. It's possible as well that the way that Boaz words this he seems to see a parallel between what Abraham did in Genesis 12 when he leaves the, his family and his land. He sees a parallel between that and what Ruth has done in leaving her family and her land, led of Moab. So verse 12, Boaz says, May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Speak so kindly to her giving her blessing. Boaz must have heard from Naomi that this Moabite had trusted in the Lord. Remember again, 116, Ruth gets saved. She turns from Chemosh, from the Chemosh religion. Boaz likely knows this because, as he says, you've come to seek refuge under his wings. Wings were a metaphor of protection, of strength. Psalm 36, 7, David Ruth's great-grandson will later write this. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Interestingly, many of David's psalms use that metaphor. Where might have David learned that? Boaz's mention of the God of Israel to a Moabite is significant. He recognizes, wow, you have... You have exercised a, a, a remarkable move of faith, turning from the God of your land, Moab, Chemosh, the God of our land, the true God. You're saved. God is going to bless you from coming under the care of God, as God will do for everybody who does this, regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, your age, what you've done, your sin in the past. You come under the wings of the true God, he will exercise his providence for your good. You can take that to the bank. And if you've yet to do so, maybe some of you haven't come under, come under the wings of the sovereign God, the true God, the God of the Bible. Have you done that? Not do you know some facts about God, but have you come under his wings for refuge? He will certainly not cast you out. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'm not going to send him away. Are you saved? Are you converted to Christ? Have you, have you come under the wings of the God of the Bible? He'll care for you like Ruth. He'll unite you to his people, grant you eternal life. It's the most permanent and excellent refuge. Also, for the rest of us, in what ways can we be used of God to sort of be used as wings to bring others to experience His refuge? What ways, what ways do you seek to do that? 
to use your gifts, skills, and resources to bring others under the gracious and, and wonderful wings of God for, for care and refuge in this town. How do we do that? How do, you, how do you seek to do that? There's more spots under God's wings. There's more room under there for people than just you. We have the opportunity to do the firewood ministry here in a few weeks. It's one small way. Well, Boaz doesn't know. What he doesn't know is that God's going to use him to bring great refuge to Ruth and Naomi. That's for later chapters. In the meantime, Ruth responds like verse 13. Then she said, I've found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you've comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. She refers to herself merely as a maidservant. And it's not the, not the Hebrew word that was used back in verse 8. The word that Ruth uses is different than uh, Boaz's female employees. She uses the, the word that, ex, that communicated the lowest, the lowliest slave in society at that time of herself. She sees herself as below Boaz's servants. Again, exemplary humility. She doesn't expect favorable treatment at all. Verse 14, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar, or the, 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 probably the sour wine is the idea. So it's lunchtime. And Boaz has an employee lunch. Probably didn't happen a lot in those days. And he says, come over here. Why is this? Because Ruth, being a foreigner, would not have presumed to be able to sit next to the Israelite employees. She distanced herself. I need to go in the room for the lowly. And Boaz says, draw near, literally it says in Hebrew, draw near. Come have table fellowship. This communicated great love, unity, equality, care, humility. He serves her food. This appetizer. And that's not all. End of verse 14. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. Probably some real tasty type of ancient crackers. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. They were full. Ruth probably hasn't been full for like a decade. You and I were full with almost, you know, every day. This is a new thing. You were to ask them, what's it like to be full? I don't remember. I don't know. Oh, God has blessed them and how Boaz is extravagantly kind to this outcast woman in all purity. He serves her and she has a doggy bag. She has some left over. And at this point, Boaz could have said, okay, Ruth, that's enough. Go ahead, take your Food home, take your grain. We still have to meet quota. We don't want you to take any more. But instead, look at verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, let her glean among the sheaves and do not insult her. Notice that even among the sheaves, typically the poor could only gather scraps after the harvesters had already come through that part of the field. But Boaz commands them to let her glean from the fallen grain before the harvesting was finished. Way above what was required. End of verse 15. Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not insult her. Verse 16. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. 
At this point, every Israelite reading this is blushing out of conviction because they have never loved their neighbor as themselves as Boaz is doing. Purposely pull it out and throw it down. Take some from your bundle and throw it. She can keep collecting it. And two times, notice, he has to say, don't insult her. Don't rebuke her. This passage is in the Bible in part to say to Israel, okay, guys, remember all that stuff I wrote about loving your neighbors yourself and Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy? This is what I meant. I meant. Remember all that stuff I wrote about loving people within the faith, no matter how different they are than you? To, to show each other that we're like family? So that outsiders would see this light and say, you know, I need something like that. This is what I'm getting at. Again, Boaz is a man of Torah. Are we as eager as him to, ex- to extend kindness to one another? Well, I'm more of a private person. God isn't asking you to be a private person. He's asking you to be a loving person. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. That's a long day in the hot Israelite sun. By the way, harvest is late spring and it is hot in Israel at that time. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she'd gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. In other words, the doggy bag from lunch. An ephah of barley weighed about 35, anywhere from 35 to 50 pounds of barley after it was beaten out. To put that in perspective, you know, one of those bags, I don't know if you've ever seen it at the store, of Bob's Red Mill Barley. Seen that? A 30-ounce bag of that costs about 10 bucks. And this is like 20 times that amount. It's a pretty good work day for not being employed and for free, Right? Ruth carries 35 to 50 pounds. No wonder Proverbs 31 is probably written about her and calls and says, an excellent wife who can find. That's about Ruth, Proverbs 31. Imagine carrying that home. I don't think Ruth had an ergonomically friendly North Face backpack that she could stuff it all in. I mean, she has like a cloth that she's carrying on her shoulder and the fields were outside the city in not New Balance shoes. I don't know what she's wearing. And she walks back to the city. It says there in verse 18. Her ways. And so verse 19, her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice, notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. So Naomi's eyes light up from the doggy bag at how much barley. This, this would have been enough barley for several weeks to live on. Ruth doesn't know how God is working. Verse 20, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, excuse me again, Naomi said, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. It's been about 10 years for Naomi, but the storms of her bitterness are beginning to clear. These words are quite a change. What Naomi says here, quite a change from her despair and resentment in chapter 1. Ten years she's been in despair and bitterness. 
Maybe you've been in despair and bitterness for a long time. God is faithful. Things are taking a turn for the better. Closest relative. The Hebrew word there translated, it means redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. This will become a major theme in the rest of the book. Briefly, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer was a chosen relative, excuse me, a close relative in Old Testament times who could legally redeem or buy back a destitute family member who maybe had to sell themselves into slavery because they had no money or who maybe had to uh, auction off their only land, which was a big deal. It was like the family inheritance because they were destitute or they had what was called levirate marriage. We'll talk more about this levirate marriages, which is Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 ish, uh, where when a, hu- when, when, a, when a husband died, a male family member could, could and should, this is a, a very important societal implement, uh, would marry the widow in order to, to care for her and secure the inheritance and keep what meager inheritance they had in the family. The Redeemer, very important situation here. And this is a ray of light in Naomi's depression as her faith was tested for the last decade. She doesn't quite see it yet. It's coming though. Verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabites said, furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they've finished all my harvest. Verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maid so that others do not fall upon you in another field. Again, Naomi understands the need for protection. So verse 23, she stayed close by the maids of Boaz, the female employees, in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. She gets the next harvest too. This would be about two months. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Wow. Wow. Well, what of all this? Isn't this brilliant storytelling? And it just continues to heighten when it crescendos in in late chapter 4. We'll get there, Lord willing, eventually. A couple of observations I want us to make here. Five helps. Five helps regarding God's providence. A couple quick observations. Some, Some timeless truths that we can take here. from this 3,200-year-old factual event. Number one, even when everything seems to be going wrong, God is working for good. That is what you and I need to keep in mind. Even when everything seems to be going wrong, God is working for good. For good, for any who would simply fall under his wing in faith. I mean, we, we could safely conclude that Naomi is, when she comes back from 11 years of suffering, husband died, two sons died, no food. She's thinking, I mean, everything is going wrong. Everything is crashing down on me. She said back into the end of chapter 1, I left full, but the Lord brought me back empty. He's against me. When you go swim in the ocean, waves come in sets. And big waves, you get crashed down, and another one comes, you get crashed down, another one comes, they come in like fours and fives. Perhaps you feel that way sometimes. God, why are you doing this? Do you really know what you're doing, God? Because I would definitely not do it this way, God. But when everything seems to be going wrong, you can bank on it that God is exercising His providence 
for good. Absolutely. Number one. Number two. Trials are often God's primary means for his good providence. That is, for carrying out his providence for your good. Trials are often the means, not comfort. Why can't God use comfort to bring about good stuff in my life? Because that's not how it is. Trials are often God's primary means for his, for his providence. In other words, to bring about good in our lives. In verse 20, back there, where Naomi says, may, God be, may he be blessed of Yahweh. Naomi realizes, oh wow, Ruth just gleaned in Boaz's field, our relative who's wealthy. She, Naomi doesn't know chapter 3 and 4 of the book yet, but she can see a little bit of hope. She seems, I mean, she, what, what she thought was she's going through this pointless despair. What do I have to go through all this, she thought. Bitterness. God was using suffering to bring about great good, and she's going to have to wait a little bit more. Remember Naomi, back in chapter 1, she's urging Ruth, I need just to stay in Moab, don't come with me. Good thing God brought Ruth, because God is going to use Ruth for great good. So it's a trial. Providence and pain often go together, don't they? Providence and pain often go together. Number three, providence comes in and through human action. God's providence, God's sovereignly orchestrating good for your life. God, God's providence comes in and through human action as opposed to inaction. Ruth and Naomi are suffering. But that was not a cause for inaction. In other words, that's not a cause. Well, if this is going to happen to me, forget it. I'm not going to worship God. I'm not going to gather with God's people. I'm not going to do anything. God's going to be like that. And Ruth takes a huge risk. Walks into this new foreign town, a field. She works hard. Not only that, isn't it interesting? I'm sure some of you were wondering this. Isn't it interesting when she goes to Boaz's field that Boaz doesn't simply say, oh, here, Ruth, you don't need to do all this gleaning. Just We got a bag of grain right here. Just take that and go home. Why doesn't he do that? He says, no, you can follow after him and they're going to pull it out and you can. God does not use our inaction. God uses our action. In other words, continuing to exercise and walk in faith in our suffering. That's how he causes his providence to play out, isn't it? Number four, we have to beware of self-pity and hard providence. Oh, let us beware of that. It's a temptation. If you struggled like I have, you have to beware of the temptation to self-pity and hard providence. Hard providence, suffering. Providence doesn't always mean things are going to go really comfy. Suffering is real. It's hard. You have to be careful about self-pity. Self-pity, one way to define it, it's a self-absorbed, a self-absorbed feeling sorry for oneself, fueled, by an inflated view of self, a low view of God, and an attitude of entitlement. 
Self-pity could be defined as a self-absorbed, feeling sorry for oneself, fueled by an inflated view of self, a low view of God, and an entitlement attitude. It seems Ruth is resisting this. It's amazing. I mean, what Ruth has gone through and the kind of sort of isms that might be present in her society, I find it fascinating that not not once does Ruth go picket and protest Boaz and his company. She's not picketing for misogyny. She's not picketing for xenophobia. She's not picketing for unfair treatment or wage inequality. I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. She's not saying, hey, you don't know what I've been through. Society owes me something. Instead, she humbles herself. She goes out to glean in the scorching sun in the country of her enemies and falls down on the ground in thankfulness when when Boaz says, they're not going to rape you and I'll give you a glass of water. She hits the deck in thankfulness. Might that be instructive for us in our day? We're far, far from that. May God help us. Self-pity. Ruth doesn't see herself entitled to anything but privileged to get some grain and water. She's a model. Self-pity preaches, this should not be happening to me. I am so much greater than all this. I'm entitled to enthronement. God is a poor God. And it's a, it's a deep pride is what self-pity is. Number five. We will often not be able to see how providence works for good. Keep in mind, providence will always work for your good, beloved. But we often will not be able to see right away how it will. If you know the end of the book, you know it's going to happen. This is going to fit together marvelously. And if you don't know the book, keep coming back and you'll see it. But they're having to live life one day at a time. They don't know what's going to happen next. Chapter 2 ends. Verse 23. It's interesting. Two months. Okay, they'll, they'll, they'll have food for another two months in the, in the wheat and barley harvest. But after that, they don't know what's going to happen. How are we going to live? What are we going to do after the harvest is over? Certainly that's in the back of their minds. They don't know how it's going to fit together. And isn't that often how it is in God's providence and suffering? God doesn't let us know everything that's going to happen ahead of time. God doesn't say, okay, this year you're going to be comfy this way. Oh, you want to know next year too? I'm going to comfort you this way. Oh, the year after that? Oh, I'll let you know. He doesn't let us see it. Far more importantly and far more lovingly from God, he lets us see him and inerrant factual events like the book of Ruth. Why doesn't God let us see how providence is going to all work out? God, how is this going to work out? Because I think God wants us to trust him. And to not trust in to not trust and worship knowing what's going to work, to trust and worship him. Puritan John Flavel in his 1678 book, The Mystery of Providence, wrote this. He said, We see providence now like disjointed wheels and scattered pins of a watch, but in glory we will see the timepiece as a completed whole. 
Psalm 37, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Cease from anger. That's such a helpful word if you struggle like I do. Cease from anger. It doesn't it only leads to evil doing, Psalm thirty seven. Well, we need to stop there and transition to communion as we do on the first Sunday of the month. Communion. This is a time to recall and embrace a few things that we really need God's grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. We need this future Savior who would come in part because of the providence of God in the book of Ruth. Perhaps the cross of Christ, perhaps the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the best example of pain and providence, right? Where God orchestrated all events in history 2,000 years ago to bring about that baby who will will celebrate the incarnation in a few months, to bring about that baby, an unlikely child in an unlikely time, to an unlikely family. Providence. Because God looked down and had compassion on sinners like me and you in the world. And He orchestrated all events and the Lord Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and became a man, and he lived perfectly as no one else ever has or would. He lived perfectly according to the law of God, in thought, in word, in deed, constantly. He never complained about providence and hardship and suffering. He always perfectly loved God and perfectly loved people every moment in his life, so that, not to be a moral example primarily, so that when he went to the cross, God takes care of the greatest problem in the universe. That is the problem of the separation between humanity and himself. Behold, Isaiah 59 says, your sins have separated you from God. Any moral violation of God's perfect holiness separates, creates this chasm relationally between us and God and the way to be forgiven and the way to be reconciled and brought back together is what we, separ- uh, what we celebrate here in communion. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not trying harder and doing good or to do gooder works. It's the death of Jesus Christ that brings us together. You'll notice on the table there, you'll see a cup and you'll see bread. Those symbolize what is necessary and the only thing that is that can reconcile us to God, forgive our sins, and bring us to heaven one day. And you'll notice on the table, there's not... There's not a book with your name on it that says, well, you know, Eric has done these deeds this week and these deeds last week and these deeds the year before. You see that? There isn't that on the table because that isn't what reconciles us to God. The bread symbolizes his body, the cup, his blood, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And through the family of Ruth one day, You know the story. God would bring about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you saved? The way we access these benefits, you say, well, that's an incredible deal that all my sin I would ever commit, past, present, present, and future, that that would just be charged to Jesus on the cross 
and Jesus' righteousness would be counted to me so I would stand forgiven before God. And whether I die tomorrow or in decades, I would stand accepted to God. I would go immediately in the presence of God. No more good works or purging of my soul. That's exactly what the Bible says. And it's a very good deal, dear, dear friends. A very good deal. Jesus gets your sin. You get his righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Turning from any, any, uh, illusion that you could, that we could ever be good enough for God, we turn to Christ and put faith in Him. This symbolizes the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, also the wrath and the justice of God as He poured out our punishment, which we deserve. He poured it out on Jesus instead of you if you would put faith in Him. Won't you put faith in Him? Won't you come under His wings? We're going to take some time. I'm going to give you time. If you don't know God, ask His forgiveness. Come under His wings by faith, by believing in Christ. And then when you're ready, come grab the cup and the bread. And if you have already come under His wings and been born again by faith in Christ, let's be sure we don't partake unworthily. We don't want to partake unworthily. Places like 1 Corinthians 11 teach us that if we're holding on to some sin, if we're holding on to some bitterness, if we're holding on to something against somebody, and we're not real willing to ask God's forgiveness or their forgiveness, God says, don't come partake of this. That would mock what Christ has done, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can simply ask God's forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can just ask his forgiveness. So let's all take some time. Let's not make empty promises to God, but just look to the cross that our acceptance, our forgiveness, our righteousness, our heaven is there. We'll have the band come up for a little bit. Take your time when you're ready. Grab the bread and the cup and we'll, I'll direct us and we'll take it together.